Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the invite. Uh, it's really an honor to to chat with you all. So this is really cool for me. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you know, I think that you, you had asked about sort of sharing my um, design approach and process. Uh, one thing I wanted to start with before we even bring up the presentation or the slides is um, the importance of of two things really kind of knowing what the intended audience is for the game and the design intent for the game and those two things are obviously you know pretty closely related but um i'll use a couple of my own my own games as examples of, of how important that is so um you know you shared the, the picture earlier of the games of mine that you brought into the class so so i can use these examples i know that you have access to them but if you look at, at a game like undaunted um that game, while inspired by history, is not designed to specifically model anything historically accurate, right? So it it takes inspiration from the you know U.S. Um, rifle platoon composition in terms of the way it's constructed, and certainly it bases some of the scenarios in the game on historical inspiration. But it's not designed to to actually historically accurately model uh, its individual conflicts, and um, similarly. I think you guys have a, a copy of Resist there. Resist was designed to evoke the feeling of being in this sort of almost lost cause situation as one of the Spanish Maquis fighting against Franco in a battle that they would they would never win. Um, but again, it's not designed to um, model any sort of specific engagement that the Maquis participated in. And when you contrast that to games like um, the Valiant Defense games that you all have there, like Pavlov's House or By Stealth and Sea, those games are specifically designed to model, you know, specific historical accounts. Now, they're not attempting to be simulationist. And what I mean is they're not trying to say this is a, a precise model of the history. Instead, um, their attempts at finding core uh, things that occurred during those battles, things that I want the, the game player to, to take away so, or, or evoke within that history and, and um, model that. And so I think going into each of those, knowing, hey, this is my intent, and this is the audience that I'm trying to um, to speak to, is the, the single most important thing, right? So for Resist and Undaunted, those are targeting a much different audience than the Valiant Defense games or by Stealth and Sea. So I just wanted to, to mention that. Um, what I'm going to do when I give the presentation, I'm going to kind of walk you through one example, a specific example of a game that I designed called Lands Earth Bridge. And we'll, you'll kind of see through my process that in, that's a game where I really was trying to um, more closely reflect the actual historical account. So it's much more important in that regard. But but ultimately, it's it's your assessment about, you know, what was your original intent? So let's take resist as a much more abstract concept. Um, this feeling of sort of like uh, almost a lost cause. Right. And, and being close to the individual Maquis. Uh, forming a relationship with them and attachment to them. If the game can have the player think, um, well, I'm making a tough choice here. I'm going to choose to sacrifice this person, essentially sacrifice their life to forward this cause. Um, if the players, as I'm watching the you know play tests or if I'm getting play test reports back, if they're saying, hey, I really struggled in this game because I didn't want to sacrifice these people, then I then I know I was successful. Uh, I mean, obviously, some things are going to be much more difficult to assess than others, but that's generally through your own uh, play of the game and through the feedback you get from from your play testers. Okay, so um, I, I've I've called this uh, from history to the table, and specifically, as I mentioned before, this is about modeling like skirmish level engagement. So when I say skirmish level, this is the this is the scale in which I typically operate when I'm I'm designing uh, historical games or war games, which is to say that that you know one counter equals a person essentially, right? So we're talking a very zoomed-in scale um, where we're giving the player agency. And oftentimes, for me, those are solitaire games. It doesn't have to be, but that's typically my design uh, approach. So that's the specific focus, um, you know. Now, and that's why I wanted to talk about the importance of audience uh, earlier because it's just it's a more more broad, broadly applicable uh, conversation. But we'll step through this, and, and again, you know, if there's a, a burning question while I'm doing it, I certainly don't mind um, the questions throughout, and if not, we can just talk at the end. Okay, so I think it's important to know, you know, I, I already talked a little bit about design intent, and I, I really do think it's important that 
players of games broadly, and especially historical games or, or war games, understand the intent of the game and assess it within that intent, right? And so I think it's useful to know where a designer's where their background is, what they're coming from. And so just to kind of set the stage for me, um, my day job, I am an intelligence analyst. Um, I'm prior Air Force. Currently, I'm a Department of Defense civil servant now. Um, I'm working with the Air Force primarily, but in the past, I've worked with other, um, other parts of the Department of Defense. Uh, I'm not a military historian. Um, academically, my, my degrees are in political science and strategic intelligence. Um, but I'm certainly an enthusiast. Um, that's what, you know, most of my um, design work is in World War II, and there's a very specific reason for that. Uh, I like to dig deep into the history, and again, at that personal scale. And if you go much, you know, further back than World War II, it's very difficult to get history down to the individual soldier level. Um, and then I don't like operating in a, in a more modern time period from a personal perspective, just because that's that's living history that can, for me, can hit a little too close to home sometimes because I've lived and and worked in some of those uh, modern engagements. So my my sweet sweet spot is usually World War II. Um, and then just as a hobby game designer, um, I, I've published about twenty five games now. I've worked with a lot of different publishers, and and I say you know, collaborative partnerships, and really that means co-designs, and it's very, very seldom now that I'll design something by myself. I, I much prefer to work with a design partner. In some cases, that's a, a, an expert on the topic, and in some cases, it's a, it's a game designer, um, but regardless, it helps me um, in a lot of different ways, you know, from, from the research perspective, from the game design and testing perspective, but probably most of all, it helps me hold myself accountable. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, you can find yourself if you're working on a design, it, it's easy to put it aside and, and especially when something's on contract or has a deadline, um, having a design partner can just, like I said, hold you accountable. Okay, so the, the process, this is a very, very over generalization, but this is sort of the five steps that I view as part of my design process. Um, I always start with a, a design question, you know, what is the question that the game is trying to answer? Um, and then these other, these other steps that you can see there, we'll, we'll move through them as I talk about this in more detail, so I won't discuss them now. So I mentioned this previously, the example I'm going to walk through is Landsworth Ridge. Um, I'll give a little bit of background, but essentially this is the, this game takes place on the first day of the Battle of the Bulge. And this, this quote really sets the stage um, for what this game is all about, right? So uh, during a day-long confrontation, the American defenders inflicted dozens of casualties on the Germans and delayed by almost 20 hours the advance of the entire 1st SS Panzer Division, the spearhead of the German 6th Panzer Army. Now, um, we're going to set a little bit of a reality check here. So the American defenders we're talking about is an intelligence and reconnaissance platoon. It's about 20 people. Um, they didn't actually delay an entire Panzer division. They were a critical part of delaying that division. There were a lot of other things conspiring on the first day of the Battle of the Bulge that delayed the, this division. But I will say that it's not an exaggeration to say that these American defenders, these 20 you know, men that were in this platoon, essentially um, held up a battalion, about 500 German paratroopers, um, for the entirety of a day, which did slow down the vanguard of this division. Okay, so that that prompts our question. So how, and, and I love I love these sort of um, niche topics. I love digging deep into small scale niche topics. And so this is one that that immediately stood out when I you know first learned about it and first read about it. So how how is it possible that a single platoon can stop, you know, it can delay a division for an entire day? Right, so that's the guiding question that's going to set the stage for everything about the game. So my research process, um, once I've decided on a game topic, usually takes about six months to a year. And during this period, I'm not doing any design work at all. Um, I won't even really jot down design notes. All I'm doing is collecting materials, reading materials, um, and what I'll do is I'll flag, okay, these are important things in the story of this battle, right? So um, what I mean by this, and, and I don't really cover it in the rest of this discussion, so I'll use it as an example. In this battle, uh, 
there was a period where the German attackers um, used a, they, they deployed a Ford observer for artillery and they con uh, concealed him as a medic, right? They, they he was wearing the medic clothes. And so that, that came up in pretty much that instance of a medic that was actually a Ford observer um, calling in artillery strikes and the Americans killed them, killed that medic or that Ford observer. That came up in pretty much every single version of this story as I was doing the research. And so I knew that had to appear in the game. Um, similarly, and you'll see the, some of this as I talk through this, um, the use of heavy weapons, machine guns, medium machine guns, and heavy machine guns was absolutely critical in, in their fields of fire, was absolutely critical to this uh, engagement. And so as I'm reading, all I'm really doing is flagging, these are the things that absolutely have to appear in this game for this to be a game that actually evokes the, the historical topic. Um, there is a lot of, depending on the scale, right? If you're doing like a strategic scale game, it's not as important, but especially when you get down to this tactical and skirmish level, uh, evaluating the actual validity of some of the information is critical. Um, there's a there's a book called The Longest Winter that's about this battle, and it's written by Alex Kershaw, who's a, who's a well-known um, you know, military historian and author. And in the book, he um, uh, mixes up the use of a 30 cal machine gun and an M2 a 50 cal. Now, to, to a, a, the reader of the book, it's irrelevant. It doesn't really matter. But we're trying to uh, create a game where the distinction of those two weapons and their importance is important, is critical, really. Um, it took me days to unravel the fact that he was conflating those two different uh, weapons. And so just kind of, you know, not taking anything for granted, especially in a secondary source, is hugely important. Okay, and so again, I'm just going to quickly walk through setting a little bit of the stage here. So we're talking about the Battle of the Bulge. If you look on the, the left-hand map, that's the overview of the entire um, front line for the Battle of the Bulge. And then you see this, the blue circle there is the location. And on the right-hand side, we just start drilling down. So we can see that it goes from the entirety of the front line to one specific US division, the 99th division. And then here on the left, um, what you'll see, what I wanted to draw your attention to is first now, if you look in that blue circle, we're looking at the town of Lanzareth, which is where this takes place. And what is really important to understand the how we got to where we did with this um, historical situation is that dotted line that runs sort of the, almost along the, the bottom of the uh, map there, that's a line that shows the, the um, border between two different allied corps. So in this case, 5th Corps and 8th Corps. And what's important is the, the intelligence reconnaissance platoon is not designed to do any sort of defensive hold of a position, right? It's an, it's an INR platoon. It's designed to go out, gather intelligence and come back. But what happened is the core that was responsible um, for that, the, 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 this unit's attached to, was actually on the top part of the map. It was the fifth core. And there was a gap between the two different um, cores and they put this one single platoon there thinking, and this was a thought across all of the Battle of the Bulge, right? Oh, the Germans aren't gonna attack. It's not a big deal. We have this gap between two different cores. We'll just put this, this platoon there. That's fine. Everything will be fine. And that's what they did. And so if you look on the right-hand side, what we see in this town of Lanzareth is um, the, the single platoon we have they were there with a anti-tank unit from the other core, right? So there's all sorts of confusion and a fog of war impact and command and control straining between these two different groups, allied groups that were in the same location um, from two different cores. And so there's no real um, communication going on between the two of those. And when the Battle of the Bulge kicked off, the anti-tank unit that was there was directed to go support their um, parent unit. And so that left a single platoon in this town to defend this critical uh, road, this line of communication. Okay, so when we talk about um, the history, the setting, you know, I've kind of set the, set the stage, right? We have one, one platoon that's on this road, the super important road that the Germans are gonna try to, to um, advance along. It's, this become, it becomes immediately obvious that the critical part of this defense is the topography, right? The actual, uh, landscape of the battle itself. And so if you look at the two far left black and white images, these are both two different aerial photog uh, photographs taken right around the time of the battle, right? So this is these are both taken in early 1945. 
And so these become absolutely critical historical artifacts for creating this game, because if we're going to make a game that's really about holding this position, then we need to understand the, the topography of the position at the time. Uh, in the upper right, we have a sketch that was made by one of the defenders in the night. He, he, he made it in the 1980s. And so, um, you know, there's some question about how accurate his memory might have been at the time. But if you look at that drawing and you overlay it to the actual photograph, it's uh, or, um, the, the, the area of photographs, it's a pretty good match for the topography. So it gives us good, um, you know, reliance on, on its accuracy. And then we're fortunate that the topography really hasn't changed. Uh, even sort of like man-made structures, homes and stuff haven't really been added. And so if you see the the color photograph at the bottom that's a satellite image a recent you know satellite image and then we can use modern day GIS data which you see on the on the bottom right um, to get all sorts of good details like the topography itself the wood lines etc and so I worked closely with the artist for this game who also happens to be um, a specialist in GIS uh, geographic information systems data to make sure that we built out a a board um, that really accurately reflects everything that you see here. And so um, just digging a little bit deeper in the situation of the actual battle, what you have here is an overlay of the all the historical accounts um, on those two aerial photos. And so you see sort of the, the pink line that's coming up the road. That's the German approach up this road. And what they really want to do is they want to get to uh, the, the sort of top, if you will, of those two photos and take that road that goes off to the left. That's what they were trying to achieve. And we have our American defenders that are positioned in this shaded blue area, right? So it's at the top of this, you know, it's called Lanzareth Ridge, but to call this a ridge is really an, an over-exaggeration of its elevation. It was higher, you know, it was a slightly higher elevation than the Germans, but not substantially so. So really what the defenders are doing is they're using their dug in positions. And they were fortunate they arrived a few days beforehand and they took a lot of time and effort to build extremely well defended and well concealed defensive positions along this ridge line, along this tree line. And so here we just overlaid all of the critical um, elements that need to be um, modeled in the game. All right, now, um, that was all the research, right? So we've established this is all the things that need to be in the game. So how do we make sure it's actually in the game? This is what I call the deconstruction and modeling phase. So I'll take every single piece that we've identified as a critical uh, aspect of the game that needs to be in the game. And that's the deconstruction piece. Well, I'll flag it. Hey, this is what has to be there. And then we'll do a model. And this would be similar to, um, you know, if, if you thought of, there's a structured technique called mind mapping. I don't know if, if, if any of you ever are familiar with it or if you've ever been exposed to it, but the idea is you have a central concept and then from, from that central concept, you draw nodes and link those nodes together. And that's essentially what you're doing here in this model. There's not a begin and an end. Instead, you're just trying to establish all the possible relationships with everything in the game. And so because this game is so much about the topography, um, this actually reflects that but it also reflects everything that was being used by the Germans and by the defenders, all their weapons, all their positions, um, how those things affect each other, right? So you can see, um, you know, where the Germans were in relation to the Americans, what sort of defenses occurred. And obviously I won't, I wouldn't ask any of you to try to understand this model. That's, you know, just, just by looking at it, you need the context, but that's sort of the point, right? Is that there's so much interconnectivity here that that the point of this is to show every place there's a line that connects two things, those two things um, need to be able to interact in the game itself. And I mentioned earlier um, the importance of the, the topography and the research that went into it. And so this is the actual board of the game. So more so than any other game that I've worked on, this is a one-to-one reflection of the actual topography of the time to the board design in the game. And so what you can see at the top part of the board, all those square positions, those are defenders. They're hidden in the trees. They're in extremely well-concealed uh, uh, dugout positions. So they have fantastic protection against the German attackers. And all the circles are actual lines of attack, lines of approach that the Germans took 
to get to the defenders. And we'll I'll kind of go through this in a little bit more detail. But just while you see the whole map here, what I really want to call your attention to are those circles in the middle of the board that go right across that field. And so what we had here was a battalion, like I said earlier, of German quote unquote paratroopers. And the reason I, you know, I use sort of air quotes, if you will, for the paratroopers is really at this point, this was a paratrooper unit in name only. It was consisting of a lot of um, new recruits, many of which had zero training to include the, or very little training to include the officers. And so we had officers who were just basically telling their men, hey, there's Americans in those woods, charge across this open field, uphill, climb a fence, and get to these Americans that are extremely well defended. And for pretty much all day, that's all they did. They would just send waves and waves of Germans up this hill. Now, if you look on the far right and the far left, what you'll see is there were actual flanking positions that the Germans would ultimately take that went through concealed areas with cover that ultimately got into the American lines at the end of the day. And that's when the Americans were forced to surrender. And so I'm just gonna quickly walk through this um, in a little bit more detail, largely reflecting what I've already talked about. But the forward positions for the Americans, they, like I said before, they had extremely good cover and concealment. Um, and the Germans had none of that, right? They had to cross about 150 uh, or more meters in the open. They had, like I said, they had to climb over a fence and there were just, you know, without trying to be too gruesome, there were just bodies of dead Germans piling up on this fence as they were trying to, claw, to cross it. Um, and they had to avoid booby traps. The Americans had smartly, they'd taken all of their grenades and they had made them essentially uh, booby traps hanging from the trees as the Germans would approach that were, they were setting that off. Uh, the Americans also benefited from extremely robust uh, line of sight and fields of fire advantage over the Germans. So all of their positions, almost all of their positions along this tree line had full visibility to all of the Germans, no matter where the Germans were coming from. And so they had extremely good overlapping fields of fire from both their machine guns and their, their M1 rifles. Um, and so I just want to talk about converting some of that information into specific game design choices. So um, I decided early on that I would make this, you know, not, not unusual at all in a, in a war game, you know, we'll just make the combat a, a dice-based combat system. But it was important to me to try to roughly model um, the impact of range on the attackers, um, on the attackers, because that was a critical part of the game. And so what you'll see in this diagram is just an M1 rifle, which all the defenders were equipped with, um, the impact from a probability perspective of it hitting a defender, depending on how far the defender away is, right? So I wanted to model that somewhat on real world accuracy um, and just see, okay, this is a very straightforward, hey, at this distance, this is what the probability of hit is for the defender. And so the M1, the rifle kind of set the stage for if this is what it is and everybody has it, then we'll model the rest of the probabilities of all the other weapons on that as sort of baseline. Um, and then it's easy to add effects of cover and concealment. So if you look on the far left, you'll see a machine gun position by the Germans that had, in this case, a 25% chance of success. And that's because those machine gun positions were some of the only positions that the Germans took up that had, uh, had cover. And then this is this is an example of trying to model something like an M1 carbine, right? So the other the other defenders had rifles. Rifles are much more effective at long range, um, but an MB, M1 carbine is a submachine gun. It it has an, an advantage only at short range, like extremely short range. And so this was a very simple thing to do, where we just take two D6 and you take the best of the two of those. And so, but it has an upper limit of what it can achieve. It can't even actually reach a long distance, right? Because you're not summing them. So the M1, uh, the, the rifle can affect, can effectively reach as longer ranges than the carbine, but the carbine is, is uh, more accurate at extremely close range. And so the importance, you know, this is probably self-evident, but I'll stress it, stress it anyway. What we're trying to do here is to evoke the history, model things like accuracy for weapons without asking the player to think about any of that. You just say, oh, you, you when you use the submachine gun, roll 2d6 and take the best. When you use this rifle, roll a d8. All of the things like, you know, the, the 
upper range limit, the, the, the improved accuracy at short range, all of that is sort of modeled behind the scenes. And a player can, can um, to learn as much or as little as they want about that. Like they can play the game and not think about it at all, or they can play the game and really think about, oh yeah, I understand what's happening here behind the scenes. Um, and then I mentioned this before, the importance of heavy weapons, machine, heavy machine guns in this game, in, in this battle can't be overstated. And so this is the only game I've ever designed where it actually tracks ammunition, right? You have a, a finite amount of ammunition at the beginning of the game and modeling or uh, tracking that as a resource in the game is part of the game. Um, and that's because it really was one of the major drivers that led them to ultimately having to surrender at the end of the day. They literally just ran out of ammunition for their heavy weapons and they had no choice. Um, but there, again, um, I wanted to model two things in, in the use of these uh, heavy weapons. I wanted to be able to say, you have the ability to concentrate fire, meaning fire multiple rounds at a single position, and what's called traversing fire, which is actually turning the machine gun across um, like horizontally firing at multiple targets simultaneously. And so it, the game just allows you to roll multiple dice using ammunition against single targets, thus increasing your probability of hit. And it allows you to fire against multiple targets if you'd like to. Again, if you, as long as you're willing to use ammunition. Um, and again, every subsequent target you choose just has a penalty to attack. And so again, the game models pretty elegantly, I think, the decision space about do I want to attack multiple targets in the trade space with giving up those resources. And this is just a quick chart. Obviously, we won't dive into this, but it, it shows that that all the summary of all the different weapons and the different choices you have about how to use them, etc. Okay, and I mentioned this at first. I just want to talk about the difference now between everything I just showed you and the German flank attacks, right? So um, there were a few German NCOs that we actually have accounts for this battle from that were furious with the officers about the sort of stupidity of attacking straight up a hill um, over and over and over against these well-defended American positions. And finally, the Germans did um, execute flank attacks. They did it actually as darkness was was hitting, you know, as evening was was coming on. And so it was sort of the, the absolute best time for them to do it also. Um, but it just has everything you would want as part of an attack, right? They, they gained cover and concealment. They didn't have to navigate the fence. Um, they were able to largely avoid some of the booby tracks and they have the, the, the cover of darkness. And so um, in the game, it's all very, very, very difficult to make it through this final attack. Uh, and if you do, then then what the game is essentially simulating is you've done better than the, the, the defenders were able to do historically. Um, and so, the, the conclusion about this is it's really a combination of things. You know, we go back to the original design question, how are these, this platoon able to defend for the combination of, you know, uh, or throughout the, the a day? It's through a combination of extremely good preparation and tactical expertise on the American side, but it's extremely poor leadership and tactical inexperience of the, the attackers. Now, one thing that's not... Um, I didn't talk through, but I want to make sure that I stress here at the end is there's a reason that um, some games lend themselves better to being solid games designed to play solitaire. And so this is a solitaire game. You take on the role of the defenders. If this was a, a two-player game and one player took on the role of the Germans, the designer of the game has to start doing some pretty Herculean mental gymnastics about how do you hamstring the German player to force them to do really, really, really stupid things um, like the what happened historically. And so it, it, there's real, there's different reasons to make solitaire games. Well, one of the, the great reasons is when you have a situation like this, you don't have to, to, to hamstring one of the players or, or, or greatly limit their agency and the decisions they are able to, to make in a game that otherwise realistically they, they should be allowed to make. I'm going to throw this over to the, the students here and, and ask, see what questions they have for you after that. I mean, there was, there was a lot there, but I'm sure there are lots of questions. Um, so when you have a game and you have to kind of uh, define your resources and like how many resources you, resources you have when you get them, 
and like just how many different types there are, how do you go about like balance it, balancing that? In a yeah, um, so that's a good question. I mean, so we'll just take the example of Landsworth Ridge, which just since we just talked about it, you know, I had to make a decision early on. Like there's one thing I didn't really discuss and this goes back to the point I made about audience early on. Um, I, I I like to talk about like a rules grit budget that a game has, right? And so what I mean by rules grit or chrome rules or whatever are these like the rules that you add to a game or the elements that you add to a game that increases the complexity of the game, right? And so this goes back to the whole audience discussion of I'm making a game for a broader audience, then I have a much smaller budget, if you will, of these types of chrome rules or gritty rules or whatever, extra complexity. Um, so I had to make a decision in Landsworth Ridge about whether I really, really wanted to track ammunition, like I said. Um, and not only do you track it, but you track it for different weapon types, right? Because you can't mix a 30 cal's weapon, you know, ammunition with a 50 cal. I can't, you, you know, that's, that's first of all, it's not realistic. And secondly, it doesn't actually do what I'm trying to do, which is to say you can only use, you know, the 50 cal so many times in the game. So I knew from the start that what I wanted in this game was that the player to feel like this, this is a limited resource that they'll never have as much as they want, right? If you, if you could just use the 50 cal infinitely in the game or the 30 cal or, or their bar uh, BAR machine guns, if you could just use them infinitely, then the game would become too easy. That's what I wanted to achieve. Um, so it, it's really a trade space between you're going to constantly feel the tug of wanting to use them throughout the entirety of the game. Um, and then having to make a decision about, okay, I want to use it right now, but am I so desperate that I use it now knowing that I'm really going to need it later on. And the only way you really achieve that, I mean, probably a smarter person than me could figure that out some, some sort of mathematical model, but the only way that I'm able to achieve it um, in the games that I've designed is through constant play testing. Um, you know, saying, Hey, if, if I'm at the end of the game and I still have ammunition resources, whatever it is for this, then something's wrong, right? I shouldn't, I should be at the end of the game and I should say, well, I, not only do I not have any, but I haven't had any for a while and it's been super painful. Um, it's made, it's made life really tough for me. And so, yeah, it's really just through iterative um, play. Uh, given the advancement or, or yeah, the, advancement of artificial intelligence and then that coupled with the growing popularity of uh, video games or computer games do you think that wargaming has to move onto more of a digital platform in order to advance or do you think more traditional aspects of board games still has a lot to offer in terms of advancing the wargaming as a whole so um I think that I don't. I don't think that AI really changes the the benefits and the, the pros and the cons of sort of analog versus digital gaming right now in terms of what the analog game provides you. Which I mean, this is an oversimplification. There's a long list of pros and cons on both sides, but certainly the thing that you get in board, you know, war gaming is a much better insight and appreciation of what's going on behind the hood in the game, right? So I can play a, a board war game and I can understand, here's all the rules. I understand why things are happening, et cetera. And when you start to play more complex video games, I mean, that sometimes that information is available to you. Sometimes more, you know, more it's more transparent, but oftentimes a lot of the behind the scenes math, especially is, is sort of obfuscated intentionally because they're, they don't want to ask a player to make all of those choices. So I think, um, I mean, we see this still, you know, my day job, like I said earlier, is in the Department of Defense. And so uh, while I've been on the intelligence side, what that means is oftentimes I'll assist when it comes time to do professional war gaming. So for a very different type of war gaming, but we still oftentimes will use um, conventional, like no kidding, physical board games, because it, you get a much better appreciation, like I said, for exactly what's driving some of the decision making that you do in some of the digital. Now on the AI side, um, like I said, I don't think it necessarily changes the calculus a lot, but I'll, but I will say this, as we, as we go down the path of more AI and just digital gaming, there's a lot of things that you can do to try to simulate 
um, some of what you're doing on the design side and make life easier. And as long as it's used as a tool, I think that's probably a good idea. I think it's probably fine. Um, but when you try to, to over simulate, what I think happens is you wind up like polishing away some of the rough edges that are probably good for a game. And you start to, to get away from some of the, the um, intangible sort of human factors about a design that's really hard to, to replicate through just a, a pure, you know, sort of math AI based approach. Now that's my opinion. I know a lot of people may may differ from that. So I don't think you'll see it um, as a replacement, and I don't think that people necessarily have to shift to it. But I do think there's a lot of opportunity for for tools that can that can help. Uh, how do you decide how much randomness you put in your games, and what types of randomness you put in your games? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, so it depend. It definitely depends on the game. Right. Um, it depends on the game and how like I, I mean, this all, all the answers go back to, to the audience thing about who's your target audience. If I'm making a game for. Um, like resist, right, where it was a, a, a solo game where I want the player to feel more agency in terms of the decision making they're make, you know, they, they have up front, then I go with a more input randomness model, right, deck building, that kind of stuff, if you're familiar with that term, um, the, meaning the input randomness term, where I'm making a decision based on um, factors up front that I have agency over, and then there's no uh, randomness in the outcome. When I'm making something that's a more traditional, like, war game space game, like Landstreet's Vision we just talked about, there's an expectation within that audience for output randomness, like die rolls, where I make a choice and then I I have the, the the die roll decide whether I'm successful or not. So it, it comes down to um, what I think the proper audience would expect in the game. And not to say you can't ever like subvert expectations, but but that's usually the driver. Mm -hmm. um, and then you see a game like Undaunted that actually has both both types, right? So it's a deck builder, so it has input randomness, and it's a you know roll for combat, so it has output randomness. And so um, some people might argue and i would understand why that that's a really bad idea to have both um but it's ultimately it's a game of low complexity designed to sort of appeal and straddle two different worlds right a hobby gamer at large and a, and a war gamer also and so that was sort of the decision making on that side is there any tricks that you know of to make it easier to represent real-time strategy in a board game versus turn based um, I real time strategy, like no kidding, meaning um, like it, there's no turn sequence, right? Every it is a real time game, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, so I don't, I have not ever designed in that space. Um, and I don't, I think it's really, really, really challenging. I mean, there are some good games, you know, games that do it well, like, um, like Galaxy Trucker, you know, would be a great example of a game that does that well. Um, yeah, I think that it's probably a challenge to design a historical or war game in that space. Uh, I'm not saying it's not possible. I would certainly love to try it, but I think that you have to, it, that approach is a much better fit for a more, uh, like a broader audience type family family style game. The only things I know of are digital. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that if, you, if you're interested in exploring that space there are there are absolutely real-time games um another one that comes to mind that's worth looking at is um space cadets dice duel oh space cadets at, at large is a real-time game but space cadets uh dice duel i believe is a, a real-time game um also um captain sonar is another great one so there like i said there are games in that space but i don't think any game has um tackled sort of a historical or war game theme in a serious way I guess what's underlying that I think there's the perennial popularity of Parts of Iron 4 uh, <laughs> within people and the you know, paradox interactives you've done that. I, I don't know if you could even transpose that into an analog format. I guess. In some ways, it looks like an analog game taken into a digital space uh, rather than the other way around, which I guess is, is interesting. And uh, lots of students tell me they really like it and lose whole weekends to it. So. <laughs> 
So say you have like a, like a kind of like, I guess, a, not, not a deck building card, but you have like maybe opportunity cards or like event cards or whatever. Um, what, what are your thoughts on like putting in cards that are just uh, plainly ridiculous? But in a in a goofy way, like you have a uh, like I'm a I'm a fan of Magic the Gathering card game, and there's, there's certain cards in there that are like uh, you like you put this card down, it's an artifact, and it's like uh, you can't lose your game, you can't lose the game, and your opponents can't win the game. So it's like you're stuck there, and you have to kind of destroy this artifact card before you can actually proceed to win the game. Yeah. I, I, okay. So, so generally speaking, um, I, I don't really have an issue. Well, this is this is a very personal question, right? This is gonna the, this response is gonna be all over the spectrum depending on who you're asked. So, just this is just obviously very much my personal opinion on this. Uh, games that have these sort of like radical effects that can occur within the confines of the game that aren't really based on player agency right so i mean yeah you chose to put that card in your magic deck right but but beyond that there's nothing really unless unless the game has things like um where you have a high level of the ability to kind of mill through the deck and find the card or something like that right unless you have some considerable agency over getting to the state where you're talking about with this random card but i think i think based on your question that the intent is more this is a kind of a random effect that's like happening and it's having a significant effect on the game um I'm from the school that those are okay, but the game needs to not take itself too seriously and it probably shouldn't last too long. So a game that has the the, the less player agency you have in the game, um, the less space it really has for like a strategic horizon and the less amount of time you wanna ask the players to invest in that game. So if you have a swingy game with low player agency, that's probably okay um, as long as you're talking about playing it, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Otherwise, you run a risk of, of asking the players to invest a ton of time and effort into something they don't have a ton of control over, and it can wind up having a pretty, you know, uh, unsatisfactory feeling for at least one of those players. But again, you're going to find people all over. I mean, it, uh, the most popular example I can think of is, is Munchkin and the whole family of Take Back games. And that game can run a very long period of time, and there's not a ton of agency in that game. Right, who you're just kind of going back and forth with take that, and it's a very popular game. So clearly, there is a there is some market for that. How do you manage available information in a game where some players might possess some piece of information that they might not want their opponent um, to know? Yeah, so uh, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, it, it depends on the game, but you know, Fog of War is handled really well in games that are like block war games i don't know have you all played many block war games in your collection do you have many uh, i've got a number that have been put out for students they're not actually so popular with uh with you like there's kind of a kind of they quite work sort of barrier mm -hmm. yeah so so that's i mean so block war games are one approach um hidden movement games are another right so uh, and you can you can do that in a number of ways. Oftentimes, you'll just have one player will have um, a second map, for example. Like if you're playing on the board, you're, they, there's a player that is is hidden, um, so they they have that. So those are two very common techniques to generate fog of war. Um, there are elaborate double blind systems that are not really practical and aren't not broadly popular. So that's probably not a great path to to explore, but. Um, I mean, those are, I would say that those are the two most common, right, in the, in the historical game space, hidden movement, and, and you don't see a ton of hidden movement games in the, in the war game and historical game space, you're starting to see a little bit more of them, um, and then you've, you've got games like Atlantic Chase, I don't know if you all have seen that, but it does a really good job of simulating uncertainty, that's, it's sort of like, um, you know, it, it, it is, it's a, another fog of war technique, so. Uh, how do you handle the approach of more than like a two-sided front? Like a, like there's four factions instead of two. 
Yeah. So for one thing, it's a little bit of a cop out. I don't really do a lot of design work in that space. I do a lot of solo games and a lot of two player games. And mostly that's for practical reasons. Um, it's easier for me to do a lot of design work, like productive design work with just one design partner, which is one of the reasons that I do a lot of, of two player games because we don't have to the practical problem of, of finding a third person to do the testing. And I do pretty much 100% of all my design and testing work online. Um, I use Tabletop Simulator to do it. And because my design, most, I don't have any design partners local to me. And so, um, so that's, that's one way of saying, basically, I don't get a, a chance to do a lot of that. Um, there's sort of two questions, I think, that are, are germane to your question, your, or there's two answers, responses, whatever, germane to your question. So one is just multiplayer beyond two player games in general. How do you balance them to get away from the, the sort of like king making problem? Um, and then there is how do you model historical games where historically you often have what can boil down to the two sides. And I think that the games that do that best are games like um, uh, the coin games where you have historically aligned partial, you know, semi-aligned factions that are always going to be looking out for their own interests at the expense even of, of you know, sort of other um, allies of convenience. I think those are a really good model. And then the other thing, obviously, is you can have team-based games, which are my, my preferred, um, uh, first of all, it's my preferred play, way to play any game. I would always choose to play four or six players or whatever as teams, um, but it, it's also easier to model. So really what that ultimately comes down to is the most challenging thing then becomes the three-player game. And the only thing I can say, it's a very, very hard challenge. Um, you always want, my opinion, to be successful there, you always want to generate a way of having every player in the game through the end so that they're playing for their own victory rather than trying to, to king make or play the expense of the others. And the one game, this recent game that came out that does a fantastic job of this to, to look into is called Land and Freedom. It's about the um, Spanish Civil War. It's designed by Alex Knight. And the way it does that is um, it's essentially a card-driven game that uh, each player is fighting for themselves. But it uses this interesting chip pull system, if you're familiar with that idea, you know, you put tokens in a bag and chip pull from them um, to determine the winner. And mathematically, all three players are in the game until the very end, no matter what happens. There's always a chance for even the, the, the player that's in third place to always come back and win. And so they're incentivized to play for themselves um, always, right, throughout the course of the game. And so that it, it is a it is a significant design challenge, but I would point you to something like that as a good example of a game that does it well. Yeah, three seems like the hardest number to, to, to pull off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I know you mentioned you didn't you, you mainly do a single and two player games, but what what in your opinion is the importance of player interaction in perhaps say like a, a four person game or like a six person game as far as like uh, maybe trading cards or trading resources or even just politicking like you want to do like magic or something like that. Yeah, uh, and to be clear, do you, you mean the player interaction if you're playing as a team amongst teammates or just across all the player counts if, if, ever, if it's just a purely competitive game? Uh, across all accounts. Yeah, like, so um, I mean I, there is absolutely a world, a space for multiplayer, quote unquote, multiplayer solitaire games, right? That is a popular thing. Um, lots of people like it, you know, especially in the world of like roll and write, simultaneous roll and writes and stuff like that. That's fine. Um, that's not my preferred game experience. And, I, you know, it, and also I don't think you'll see a lot of that in the historical game world either. Uh, I think it's, I think it's paramount to have player interaction. Now, you don't have to interact with every player all the time. You know, you can have these sorts of, um, you know, mixes of like, hey, I'm mostly interacting with this one player over here right now, but maybe I need to interact with another one. Uh, again, this is all over the spectrum. Everybody's going to have their, their preferences. I'm not a huge fan of games that depend on sort of unwritten rules for informal alliances and trading and things like that. 
And for two reasons. First, I don't personally care for it. Um, but mostly it's because a lot of people don't personally care for it. And it, and it puts them in an uncomfortable space within the context of the game. And so you're asking a group, a random group of gamers who have bought this game to develop a social, the sort of magic circle, if you will, their social, social, social circle for the game to essentially do a bunch of the design work that you didn't do when you created the game, which is to establish all of this, these norms around how you're going to interact. And so um, I'm much more of a fan of the game providing the structure for all those points of interaction, right? So having explicit rules about how you trade, how you combat, how you can make alliances, break alliances, all of those things. So now there's, you know, we could talk for days on, on all the different techniques for doing that, but I would just say me personally, I'm a much, a much bigger fan of the game actually providing the structure rather than relying on the players to adjudicate all that themselves. And, and that would foot stomp and especially uh, in games that don't require binding agreements for players, right? They, they, they not only go so far as to say you can make all these arrangements, but then you, they, whatever you, you make these deals of, they're not binding. To me, that's just a recipe for, for a lot of problems. How do you man manage tension at the game? How do you like make it do what you want it to do? Yeah, um, well, so this goes back to, to the player count. I mean, it, this is absolutely, the, the, the answer to the question depends on player count, right? If you're playing a solitaire game, managing tension is very different than playing a two-player game, et cetera. Um, but I mean, one easy trick, regardless of, of the player count, is just to give the players make sure that the player always wants to do more than they can ever do on their turn, right? So that, and that, that runs all player counts, all situations, et cetera. Um, I want to do five things right now, but either because of resource limitation or action limitation or whatever it is, I can only do three. What are the three things that I'm going to do? Um, when you do stuff like that, it, it really helps. Well, first of all, it, it, it organically increases the tension because you're, you're asking the player to make tough choices about whatever that constraint that you put them in. Um, it's, I think that's probably the one independent of player count thing that you can do, right? So if you've got that constant feeling of, I want to do more, and then similarly at the end of the game, oh, I just wish I had one more turn to do this one thing. Every once in a while, that can feel a little bit unsatisfying, right? Because you're like, oh, I, I would really like to actually see this thing to come to fruition. But in, I think in, in practice, what you get is that just means the players are more incentivized to come back to the game. You know, thank you so much for joining us this morning and for, for coming and talking. It's been fantastic and, and really helpful and very generous of you to spend time with us. So, uh, you know, a, a thousand thank yous. Um, hopefully, you know, we're students going to dive more now into, into your games with a bit more of a sense of, of what your intentions were behind it. I think that's one of the things that's kind of important in the game space is what, what is the game for? What's the design intent behind it? Uh, and get to think about it. And I'm excited to, to see your next game coming out on the, the Night Witches with Liz Davidson. Uh, oh, yeah. To, to wrap up, thank you so much for joining us and, uh, and, and spending time with us this morning and, and answering all those questions for us. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.